If the statistics are to be believed, in 2019, the Center for the Global Study of Christianity reported or estimated that 31.2% of the world's population considers themselves Christian. That means that somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.5 billion people, when they were asked this question, what religion do you follow, answered, Christianity. They answered, we believe in Jesus. What exactly it means, however, for them to believe in Jesus is not explained. But I want you to think about this. If these stats hold true, that would mean that one out of every three or so people that you and I encounter in our daily lives are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in some way. Is that your experience? As you go to work, as you go to the store, as you go to the park, as you go to, on vacation, as you go out and about, as you go wherever it is that you go, do you get the sense that one-third of the people in, that you encounter in these places serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not my experience. Now, we know that studies like this will use the loosest possible definition of the word Christian. There are people who can be committed to self-idolatry. They could be committed, for example, to New Age spiritual practice. They could be committed to the most anti-Christian things and yet somehow find a way to say, yeah, well, I'm a Christian. And they would be included in this type of study. But as Christ and the apostles make clear, there are those who profess Jesus with their lips and then completely, absolutely, and utterly deny Him by their lifestyle. There are those who claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but who have no concern about actually being his disciple, about actually knowing his word and believing it, about actually obeying the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to take it even a step further, if you were to survey the North American church landscape, the visible church made up of all who say they believe in Jesus Christ, it would seem to me that there are many churches that suffer from a plague of false converts. Those who profess Jesus Christ as Savior, but who remain unwilling to actually hear what he teaches, understand it, and submit themselves to it. There are those who on the day of judgment will be numbered with the group that Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. When the Lord said, when our Lord said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, this is a problem because as Jesus made it so abundantly clear to his disciples on this day in our text this morning, in verse 24, listen to it, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. As Jesus repeatedly did, he set out the terms of discipleship in a vivid, 
descriptive and straightforward manner. Notice the phrase, take up his cross. Now for us, the cross is a sign and symbol of our joy, but pre-crucifixion, pre-establishment of the church, this phrase would have carried with it intense associations, intense overtones to a Jewish person listening to Jesus speak about it. To a first century Jew, the cross was to them and for them the instrument of a person's excruciatingly painful death. The cross was an object of shame. The cross was an object of pain. The cross was an object revealing rejection. This is how Jesus operated, consistently presenting the cost of discipleship right up front. When calling people to faith and repentance, he didn't make it easy. Jesus didn't, as so many do today, present people with some sort of bait and switch. Come to Jesus and all of your problems will disappear. No, listen to what Jesus said. If you would be my disciple, it will require from you absolutely everything. Everything you hold dear. Your very life. It will lead to more difficulty in this world. And yet, because you have me, because you are mine, the life of discipleship, though exceedingly difficult, will be better than the greatest life you could live in this world apart from me. Jesus brought the truly repentant to himself by being so clear about the cost and at the very same time dissuaded the half-hearted, dissuaded the superficial, dissuaded the uncommitted folk who might take his name upon their lips without truly submitting themselves to his lordship. And you can see this over and over and over again in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, for example, there we read of three men who approached Jesus offering to follow him. And all three times, Jesus set out the terms of self-denial, of taking up the cross, albeit with different words. Listen to it in Luke chapter 9. As they were going along the road... Someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Three instances are revealed here of people who are professing some sort of desire to follow Jesus. And in all three instances, Jesus makes it clear what such a profession entails. For one, it was a homeless and transient life. For another, it meant leaving off all the cultural expectations and responsibilities of preparing and carrying out family burial rites, which was a humongous deal in the first century. For another, it meant a complete and total break with the world. 
Following Jesus meant looking forward in obedience rather than backwards with a longing for the world and re-enslavement to it. We don't, like the Israelites in the wilderness, think fondly on our days of enslavement in Egypt, nor do we rail against the leaders who try to lead us into the promised land. I was reading this morning, I've been reading this tremendous work called The Preacher, His Life and His Work by a man named Reverend Jowett, and he explains the work of the ministers who try to lead you into the promised land saying we cannot be blind to the solemn responsibilities of the ministry. It is a great, an awful, and a holy trust. We are called to be guides and guardians of the souls of men, leading them into the way of peace. We are to be constantly engaged with eternal interests, leading the thoughts and wills of men to the things that primarily matter and disengaging them from lesser or meaner concerns which hold them in servitude to the world. That's the call. And the, Egyptian, or the Israelites in the wilderness kept grumbling against Moses as he labored to do this among them. And again, we see the cost of discipleship revealed in Matthew 19. When a rich young man approached Jesus asking him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied in Matthew 19, 21, saying, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus knew exactly what it was that tied up and bound this young man's heart. He knew that for this young man, any profession of faith would be half-hearted so long as he clung to his earthly riches. Any confession of faith or any movement to following Jesus would be a byproduct of a heart that hoped to serve two masters, God and money. Jesus said that's simply not possible. And the cost for this young man was simply too much. And Matthew describes his response to Jesus setting out the terms right up front in verse 22 of chapter 19. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus set the cost out for this young man right up front. The young man heard it and determined to himself that it simply was not worth it. And so, while sorrowful about it all, he turned and left, choosing to hold on to the great possessions that he owned in this world over keeping his very soul. And did you notice, Jesus let him walk away. Jesus let him leave. Jesus didn't change the terms. He set them before the man and then left it to the man. And the young man chose poorly. And again, in John chapter 6, after Christ had fed the 5,000 people, the crowds were excited at the prospect here of following him. They even sought to make Jesus king. And at the height of his popularity while being followed around by thousands of so-called disciples, Jesus once again set before them the cost of discipleship. And John records of these same crowds, after hearing the terms set out by Jesus, he he said, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And yet, 
even with such clear examples of witness, evangelism, and mission to a lost world, from Jesus himself, I am always shocked, and maybe I shouldn't be, by the systems of faith and discipleship that we've created in our professing churches today. We've invented and we've established a church culture that coddles to, that bends to, that supports and encourages the very sorts of people that Jesus sought to deter and discourage from making a profession of faith in Him. We've tried to make the widest possible tent to fit the most amount of people in. Anyone who has any sort of positive association with Jesus or speaks positively about Jesus, we want to somehow fit them into the tent. And so we have myriads of false converts populating churches all across the world. People who will say some nice things about Jesus but who will simply not live their lives for him. The type of people who will say, I believe in Jesus, but who flat out refuse to actually bow down to him as Lord and King, who refuse to believe and to obey the very things that he taught and said in Scripture, whose lives are not lived for his glory, but for earthly comforts and gains. Entire church movements, fads, and denominations have been designed to pamper and indulge false converts. A practice that flat out contradicts the ministry example that has been given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Who says, if anyone would come to me, deny, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus made it clear, you must know him as Savior and as Lord. You must recognize him as the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and the King and Sovereign over your life. Meaning, all of us who would follow after Jesus must give up. We must lay down all claims to the self. We must dedicate the totality of our lives to him. Hear it again. This is one of the clearest sets Uh, clearest words of Jesus where he sets out the terms of discipleship for us. 24, just look at it again. Let its weight fall upon you. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now the context of these words come as Peter has just tried to rebuke Jesus. Jesus had just explained to the disciples what it is that Messiah must do in verse 21 of chapter 16, telling the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, hearing these words, thought that he knew better. He had different ideas as to what the role and the task and the works of the Christ ought to be. He thought he knew more than the Son of the living God. And so he, in verse 22, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You see, Peter wanted the Messiah that he had grown up hearing about. The Messiah that would lead Israel in armed revolt against Roman oppression. The Messiah come to liberate Israel from any and all foreign rule and oversight. 
the Messiah come to reestablish a sovereign and autonomous nation of Israel. The Messiah come to rule over this reestablished, liberated, and now independent nation, leading her in a golden age of unprecedented peace and prosperity and power, a nation to which all other nations would bring tribute, would defer or be crushed. So when Jesus here clarified the necessities of his identity as Messiah, that his role was not, at least not yet, to rule and reign over Israel from an earthly throne situated in Jerusalem, but instead to suffer and be killed, this was simply too much for Peter to bear. It crossed against, it rubbed against Peter's desires and hopes. It went against what Peter so desperately wanted. And so in a moment, perhaps the moment of supreme arrogance and self-importance, Peter took Jesus aside to outline for him how Messiah ought to act. What Messiah ought to do. And Christ responded to Peter's utter folly with the most staggering rebuke, pointing out Peter's fixation on earthly things. A fixation that blinded him to the things of God. You see, Peter's inability, his refusal at this point to accept the will of the Father for Messiah led Peter to unwittingly repeat the tests that Satan brought against Jesus in the wilderness. Peter called upon Christ to do the same thing Satan called upon Christ to do. Accept the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Peter, at this moment, tried to convince Jesus to bypass the cross, to avoid the suffering and the shame, to steer clear of death and being killed. For Peter, Messiah is better off and Israel is better served by a crossless Christ. Which, as we know on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, simply is not true. If Christ had not gone to the cross, every single one of us, every single one of you, along with every single man, woman, and child who has ever existed would be right now either under the wrath of God or in hell, hopeless, helpless, and tormented. If Christ had bypassed the cross, every one of us would remain dead in our trespasses and sins right now, enslaved to sin, and bound for an eternity in the lake of fire. Peter didn't realize it, but this is what he was asking for. In all of his limited human wisdom, in his arrogant assumption that he knew best, he called upon Jesus to avoid the path that purchased his own salvation. But thankfully... Christ did indeed suffer many things at the hands of Israel's elders and chief priests and scribes. He endured the suffering and the shame on the way to the cross. And while fastened on the cross, he bore upon himself in our place as our substitute the penalty for the sins that we have committed. Jesus didn't go to the cross because of anything he did. He didn't suffer for any sin that he committed. He was sinless. He suffered there for what you and I have done. And when Jesus gave up his spirit, he died the death that you and I deserve. And when he rose from the dead, he clearly displayed the Father's acceptance of his sacrificial offering and gave to all who truly trust in him a foretaste of our own future resurrection. 
Oh, what a glorious future awaits all true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. But at this point in Matthew chapter 16, the disciples didn't yet understand. They didn't know it. They didn't get it. And so Christ proceeds to correct their erroneous worldview. And beginning with the suffering of Messiah in verses 20 to 23, Jesus now continues in our texts explaining to the disciples that they too, that all who would be a disciple of Christ must follow in his footsteps. That all who would come to him must pick up and carry the instrument of their own death and suffering. As Christ prayed in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, in reference to all that he would suffer over the next few hours, you remember it, the prayer was, not my will, but yours be done. And so we, would, who would follow after Christ as his disciples, are commanded by him in verse 24 to make the same profession, Lord Jesus Christ, not my will, but yours be done in my life. Let your will be the priority in my life. Let it take precedence over every area of my life. This is what Christ was saying when he told his disciples, again in verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So let's explore the details of that verse. Let's explore the details of discipleship as clarified by Jesus in verse 24. He begins, If anyone would come after me, meaning, if any would turn to him in faith and become a disciple, all who make such a decision, all who make such a choice must recognize and understand the cost of that choice. Becoming a disciple of Jesus means that we relinquish everything to him. That his will and his call and his commands supersede our own in every single facet of our lives. It means that we commit, himself, commit ourselves to him on his terms and we don't, like Peter, take him aside and think that we can rebuke him and change him. And what are his terms? Again, look at verse 24. The terms are simple. We deny ourselves, we take up our cross, we follow him. These are the terms. Let's look at each one. Because Christ here is preparing the disciples for an as-of-yet-unexpected reality of following him. You see, it's not only Christ who traveled the road of suffering. It's not only Christ who travels the road, traveled the road of death. But anyone... Anyone who truly turns to him must recognize and accept this fact. The same end and outcome might be your reality. Everyone who would consider truly following Christ as a disciple must count this cost. They must give thought to this. They must examine whether you will submit to the terms as he sets them out. You might very well lose your life as followers of Christ do around the world each and every day. It could be that at this very moment, some precious saint is breathing their last breath under the, the weight of persecution somewhere in the world. And that might be your reality. You might lose your family. 
You might lose your friends. You might lose your job and your prospects. You might lose your earthly freedom. And in, the, in place of those things, you might experience the scorn and the shame and the sufferings brought upon you by the world. See, Jesus knew precisely what path he was called to walk. He knew exactly where that path led. And he set his face in full confidence and trust in the will of his heavenly Father to walking that path. Even though it meant tremendous suffering for him. And Jesus lets everyone know beforehand that coming after Christ as a disciple might very well mean the same for you. Are you willing to pay that cost? For us who would turn to Jesus, for those of us who are not satisfied with being a Christian in the loosest possible term as defined by the Center for the Global Study of Christianity, which we referred to at the beginning, if you truly want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, then hear his own words. First, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. You and I know it, right? The default direction and bent of our heart is towards self-idolatry. We love ourselves. Whether we do that by being proud and arrogant or whether we do that by trying to turn everyone's attention upon us in some way, shape, or form, we want the attention. We want life lived our way. And left to our own devices, we will always choose ourselves over God. We will always choose, as Romans 1 tells us, to suppress what God has revealed about himself in favor of charting our own course. And we even go so far, as Romans 1.23 tells us, to, as to exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Just take a look at the world we live in. This relentless, determined pursuit of all things self has characterized mankind from the days of Genesis 3 and the fall all the way to this very moment. And here in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus levels a most devastating blow to this instinctive and automatic tendency in all of us when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. The word deny here means to disown one's self. To reject self-will, self-determination, self-pride, self-sufficiency. Jesus calls on everyone who would come to him as a disciple to let go of, to eliminate, to put to death any and all expectations, wants, desires, and practices that contradict the revealed will, plan, and word of God. To deny yourself means the disciple of Jesus Christ refuses to indulge fleshly passions and desires. It means that we reject them, that we renounce them wholeheartedly. It also means that we understand and recognize the truth about our situation before God. Apart from Christ, we have nothing to offer Him. There is nothing about you and there is nothing about me that commends us to God. And with the knowledge of this truth that if it isn't for Jesus, you and I are nothing, we stop puffing ourselves up. We strive against the natural tendency to pride and arrogance. It means that instead of pride, instead of arrogance, we recognize our spiritual destitution and poverty before the Lord. 
apart from Jesus Christ. We recognize that God isn't sitting up there in heaven saying, boy, I am so lucky that the folks at Winona Gospel Church believe in me. I mean, they're pretty great. I'm glad they joined the team. Now we can really get moving now that they're here. It's just not the case. Scripture tells us that the Lord, while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, while we were in open, hostile rebellion against him, while we had turned aside from him and suppressed the knowledge of the truth, even with all of this, Christ died for us justifying all who believe and saving us who truly believe from the wrath of God. And we recognize this and we put all of our hope in this. We have nothing of worth to offer to God. We have no righteousness in ourselves by which to gain his favor or approval. And so we deny ourselves any thoughts of personal greatness apart from salvation by grace through faith in Christ. We repeat the words of the great old hymn that the great preacher Charles Spurgeon was fond of repeating in a number of his sermons. Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. If anyone wishes to be counted a true disciple of Christ, they must wave goodbye to the self and accept the pain, accept the suffering, accept the persecutions, accept the tribulations that might come your way as you follow him wherever he leads. The servant, said Jesus, is not above his master. And so the disciple recognizes that even in the face of tribulation and difficulty, they must keep following. They must keep trusting as Jesus did in the Father's good and perfect will. Even when everything in you screams, just take control. You refuse to chart the course of your own life in the direction of your own desires. Even when the world starts ratcheting up the pressure by making life increasingly difficult for those who follow after Christ as his disciple, we deny ourselves. Repenting of our old worldly ways, of our selfish interests, of our proud self-focus, of our delusions of greatness, our arrogant assumptions of being more worthy than others of Christ's love, and instead we ascribe all glory and all honor and all majesty and all worth and all power to God and God alone. To deny yourself means that Jesus is truly the Lord of your life. And we must daily deny the impulse to try retaking top billing from him. To deny ourselves is to subject ourselves to the word of God. And when your flesh and your deceptive heart and the culture you live in and, or Satan himself works upon you to question scripture, to bring you to a place where you align with the spirit of the age over scripture, with the ideas of the world instead of scripture, when we are pressured to adjust Scripture, to refuse Scripture, to avoid Scripture, to edit Scripture because it crosses paths with something we want, 
When the enemy comes to you like he did to Eve in the garden and asks, did God actually say, and tries to make you question the goodness of God, when the enemy comes and says, you know what you really need to do about these texts of Scripture that the world really hates? You really just need to have a conversation about them. You need to deconstruct them. Listen, the disciple denies the urge to twist or adjust God's word to appease our flesh. The one who denies themselves simply submits him or herself to what the Lord has so clearly and plainly commanded in his word. And while it may seem the opposite, the greatest joy that any person in this world can experience is life as a disciple of Christ, obedient to the commands of Christ. His ways are perfect and they are the best ways. They may lead to some pain in this world, but they are the best ways. There is no conversation to be had when it comes to the demands of Christ. We know it. We know this to be true. He is clear. His word is clear. His commands are clear. What it means to follow him is clear. We all know this. But there are many so-called disciples who labor to make the scripture unclear, who try to make the scripture ambiguous for the sake of following the dictates of their flesh. I don't know how many times I've been in conversations where the sign of someone's spiritual maturity is their lack of knowledge about what scripture says. Or their humility, humility in, in not saying what Scripture clearly says. I remember having a discussion one time about women in ministry, saying women cannot be elders and pastors in the church. It violates the Word of God. And the person to whom I was talking said, well, you know, greater minds have discussed this subject, and so we just need to be less certain of what we believe. And I remember looking at them and saying, well, no, their greatest mind has already spoken. And anyone who disagrees with or contradicts the greatest mind, which is Jesus Christ, isn't a great mind. So no, the greatest minds haven't had this discussion. They didn't like that. May it never be that we violate the word of God in so foolish a way. Deny yourself and submit yourself to everything Christ has spoken. To deny oneself also means that our primary goal in this life is not the acquiring of more of its comforts, more of its gains, and more of its applause, but instead, as Jesus commanded the crowds listening to him preach the Sermon on the Mount just a few chapters earlier, to seek, it is to seek first the kingdom of God, to submit to him as Lord and King in all things, come what may. It's a high cost, a very high cost for those who are in love with the world. It is a dear cost to those who are in love with themselves. And while many will simply refuse, for those who do choose to go after Christ as a disciple, who deny themselves in favor of service to Christ, as Christ will soon make clear in our text, the benefits and the blessings of such a decision far outweigh the costs. And I pray that you will not be one who continues to delude themselves in a false profession of faith. And Jesus continued, If anyone would come after me, first let him deny himself, and second let him take up his cross. 
See, the disciple of Christ must pick up and carry with him or her the instrument of their death. In the same way that Christ would take up his cross and obediently walk the path that had been set out for him by his Father, so we too, disciples of Jesus, must lay down any and all claims to our own life. Again, Jesus called on those who would be disciples to completely and totally dedicate themselves to his service, not our own. Something scripture calls for from us numerous times. One, for example, is what the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2. There he wrote, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. As a disciple of Christ, we must be both willing and prepared to suffer whatever comes our way because of our commitment to following Christ. We must be willing and prepared to suffer revilings, insults, slanders, embarrassments, persecutions, hatreds, and reproaches for the sake of Jesus. We must be willing to live and prepared to live as one who is condemned by this world to die and suffering all of the trials and the turmoils that come with living in such a state. Luke actually records this word of Christ, and there he, he records the text as saying this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily. This goes to show how difficult this is. Every day we must commit ourselves to sacrificing our own wills in favor of following after Christ, in favor of walking the path that he walked before us. So this morning, to all of you who profess faith and trust in Christ, to all of you who call yourself a disciple, do you hear the terms that Christ has laid down here this morning? Are you willing to deny yourself and take up your cross? Are you willing to endure all things for service to Christ and for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to follow in his footsteps wherever he will lead? Or are you trying at this moment to live some no or low-cost brand of discipleship? For those who avoid the denial of self, for those who would rather not take up your cross, you must hear the words of Christ here because according to Him, you have not yet truly come after Him as a disciple. Sure, you have taken His name to your lips, but you haven't truly turned to Him according to His command. And so if that's you... Hear it again. First, deny yourself. Second, take up your cross. And third, follow him. Follow him, meaning behave in accordance and in agreement with Christ. It's not only the denial of him and the de denial of yourself and the deny dying to self, but it's also filling that spot that was once occupied by you with him. It's not enough to strive for moral reformation in your life. It's not enough to try and simply be a better person. It's not enough to try modifying your behavior because none of that wins the affection of God. None of that secures the favor of God. None of these things make you righteous in the sight of God. One must 
turn to and follow Christ to be saved, believing in Him and what He accomplished at the cross, that by faith in Him and Him alone, one is saved by the grace of God. For all who would truly obey the call of Christ, who count the cost of the... For all who would refuse to obey the call of Christ, who count the cost too high, know this, any loss that we might suffer, any loss that you might suffer, and trial that you might endure in following Him is only earthly and temporal. The great gain of true faith in Christ is first that we get Him. The delight and the joy of our souls and along with Him eternal gains that far exceed any earthly loss. If this morning you will not submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ by denying self, taking up your cross and following him, you cannot be, nor are you at this moment, his disciple. And hear me clearly, to refuse his call in favor of acquiring greater earthly comforts and pleasures will result in the forfeiture of your very soul. So what Jesus said next in verses 25 and 26, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? Whoever would try to rescue or save or amplify their earthly comforts at the expense of truly turning to Jesus in discipleship will ultimately not only lose all of the comforts that they sought to accumulate in this life, but they will ultimately lose something infinitely worse. They will lose their very soul. If, you, if your focus in this life is on your riches and your comforts, and these occupy more of your mind and your heart than the denial of self, the taking up of your cross, and the following of Jesus. If your primary goal in this life is ease, is more of the world's good, is more of the world's applause, and you will not, you do not, you refuse at this moment to commit yourself to Jesus as his disciple on his terms, you are squandering your opportunity to lay hold of eternal life. If you would save your life, meaning keep it from worldly consequences that come our way because of our commitment to Christ, if you would save your life on earth by concerning yourself with the protection of your reputation, your finances, your security, and your comforts over the denial of self, taking up your cross and following Jesus, you will lose the very life you, you are seeking to save. However, if you'd lose your life meaning deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus, following in his footsteps like we have uh, explained, preparing to suffer loss in this world as his disciple for his sake, whatever the cost may be. Whoever gives up and renounces their self to obey Christ, who renounces their bitterness, who sacrifices personal comforts, who endures afflictions even if, they, even if it means they might lose their life, Jesus said, those will find it. And not only will you find it, but you will find it to a greater degree than you could have ever imagined. Hear the paradox here. To strive for your best life now rather than going after Christ, come what may in this life, will result in the loss of your life and an eternity of the worst sort of poverty as one who must live now eternally under the wrath of God. 
Whereas one who lived a life for Jesus, while it may look to the eyes of the world like it is a wasted life, will result in the greatest riches, the true joy of the presence of the Lord for eternity, the richest life possible. Now listen for a second. I want you to imagine. Imagine with me that you possessed everything in the world, every single last penny in the world, that it was all yours to enjoy for the, on average, 72 years of life that we live on earth. Hear the question of Jesus. Of what benefit would it all be? Of what gain would it all be if in acquiring it all, you forfeited your eternal soul? If you are not what the Bible calls a fool, it's easy to see that the trade-off here just simply isn't worth it, is it? All the riches and treasures of the world are not worth the loss of the soul, and yet every single day, people forfeit their souls not for the entirety of the earth's treasures, but for the smallest of earth's trinkets and pennies and comforts. May it never be that you, dear saints, would make such a cheap trade. May it never be that you, like Esau, would trade your birthright for a bowl of stew. May it never be that you would put your very soul in peril for the sake of gaining the fleeting and earthly things of this earth, because if your soul is lost, it is lost forever, and there is no price you can pay to save it. Seriously ponder and consider and meditate on this reality. What do you think a person who has forfeited their soul would give right now in return for it? They would give the whole world if it was theirs. In the blink of an eye, they'd divest themselves of everything in return for their soul. They would trade the very gain they so desperately sought to accumulate, but Jesus said, it's not enough. The only acceptable payment that can be offered for the soul is the work of Christ by laying hold of his forgiveness by grace through faith in him. And the one who is now suffering under the wrath of God because they forfeited their soul would trade it all in the second that his soul was plunged into the terrible torments of God's wrath. If this is you and you one day are plunged that very moment you will realize the trade was not worth it. And as the truth dawns on you that there will never come even a second of relief from the holy, terrifying, and just wrath of the God that you have spurned in your life, with each passing moment as there is no end in sight, you will wish you had chosen differently. Oh, how I wish I had lost my life in order to gain it. Make no mistake about it, as Jesus said next, there will come a day when Jesus returns. As you see in verse 27, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. See, the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is destined, is guaranteed to return. And when he does return, he will repay each person according to what they've done. This coming day of judgment and recompense will reveal those who gained their lives by losing them and those who lost their lives by trying to gain them in the world. This day when Jesus returns, he will bring to light those who have forfeited their souls and those who have gained them. The reality of this future day ought to confront you with the importance of your soul. 
and bring you to a place where you cry out to Him for salvation. This ought to shake you up. It ought to wake you up from your earthly slumber, from your love for the world and the things of the world. Because as the Apostle John wrote, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And James also warned, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And when Christ comes on this day, he will reveal it all. He will reveal whether we truly followed him as disciples or whether we simply professed with our mouths while remaining committed to the things of the world. On that day, it'll all be revealed. The state of our hearts displayed and souls that have been forfeited or gained. This is a staggering and urgent warning held out to all by the Lord Jesus Christ. If any would come to me, come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And the great Puritan pastor Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a treatise to test his own congregation way back in the 1600s. So when you hear in this long quote about cold mornings, you remember he lives in a time when you had to get up and start a fire and it was freezing. It's not, he didn't wake up to a 22-degree house. And when he wanted to travel, it was long travel. It wasn't hopping on a plane and getting to Thunder Bay in two hours. It was hopping on a boat and taking six months to get somewhere. Right? And he wrote this, and listen... Listen to his challenge, to his congregation. An earthly-minded man will pass through many great difficulties in matters of the earth. And they're very little to him because they're in their element. Observe this. When a man's spirit is in this kind of earthly-mindedness, let him be busied about his earthly things wherein he gets some earthly advantage and no difficulty will hinder him, whether it is wind or whether it is weather. He will rise in cold mornings. He will go abroad. He will do anything in the world. Oh, what difficulties men will endure in storms at sea and hazards there and troubles at land and sit up late and rise early and toil themselves and complain of no weariness or difficulties in order to gain earthly things. But let them come to spiritual things, to soul business that concerns God and their spiritual estates. Then every little difficulty puts them aside and discourages them. Every molehill is a mountain in their way. I would do so and so. I would read my Bible. I would pray. But it's so hard and it's so tedious to rise in the morning, especially in cold winters. It's very hard and difficult to read and pray, and so he complains of the difficulty of these things. To watch over the heart is a difficult thing. To an earthly man, any spiritual thing is difficult, and the difficulties discourage them. In spiritual things, oh, how weary we are. In Malachi 1.13, they cry out, what a weariness it is! But they can follow the business of the world from morning to night and never get tired. They can work like a horse, in the things of the world and never be out of breath. I wish that you would once try to spend on the Sabbath, spend the Sabbath exactly and see what a weariness it would be to you. Resolve just one Sabbath, one Sunday, to rise early in the morning and to have your thoughts spiritual and heavenly as much as you can. Then get up and pray alone in your closet. Then read, hear, meditate, and mark what you hear. 
And when you go home from your church services, think about it and confer about it. And when you come again to attend upon the Word, and so spend the whole day in hearing, reading, meditating, and conferencing about these good things, calling your family to account, praying again, tell me how tiresome this is to your hearts. And you will see how carnal they are. However, a spiritual heart will call the Sabbath a delight. And the Sabbath unto such a one is no other than a type and forerunner to that eternal day of rest it shall enjoy in the kingdom of heaven. One who is spiritual counts the Sabbath to be a day of rest, but an earthly man is quickly tired in spiritual things. How tired do you get in spiritual things, and how quickly do you get tired by them? Which are you? What would be the outcome for you if Christ returned right now? Would your soul be forfeit, or have you gained life? You sit right now under a great mercy of your God. Scripture tells us that he is not slow to fulfill his promise of Christ's return. But the Apostle Peter wrote that he is patient toward you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But know this, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And so you have right now, at this very moment, if you haven't yet the option or the, the call put out to you to truly go after Christ, to truly deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him as a disciple. Now listen, don't be justifying yourself in this moment. Do not delude yourself in this moment. Do not shrug off the call of the Lord this morning. Turn to him. Because as Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 3, Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, were there, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So listen in closing. Today, this minute, this moment, presents to you a most glorious and gracious opportunity. The Lord is right now, in his grace and in his mercy, holding out to you an offer that might never come to you again. Who knows what will happen to you in five minutes, in 10 minutes, in an hour, in 24 hours. You don't know. This might be the very last time that you are held, that the call to faith and repentance and true discipleship is held out to you. So I pray that you would turn to him for the sake of your eternal soul, that you would turn to him as a true disciple in faith on his terms. Hear and respond to his gracious call to you for your salvation and for his great glory. And we pray this in the name of... Father, we thank you and we praise you. And Lord, we are so grateful to you that you have put such difficult words throughout Scripture. We recognize and we see, if we are faithful in our reading, that you are tremendously holy 
that you are perfect, that you are righteous, that you are just, and that we are wicked and we are sinners. You didn't have to save any of us. And yet you showed your love by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. And you hold out to each and every one of us the offer of discipleship. And the Lord Jesus Christ made it so clear what those terms are. So, Lord, I pray that in a world filled with voices and lies and deceptions, I pray that as our own hearts and our own minds and our own selves labor to deceive us, I pray that you would cut through all of that by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we can clearly hear your voice this morning. So that we might truly be your disciples. That we might be those who've counted the cost and have denied ourselves taken up our cross and followed you. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.